When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to CLE Rocks, the podcast from the birthplace of rock and roll. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Now, on with the show. Rock and roll may have been born in the 1950s, but it truly became a larger-than-life pop culture juggernaut in the 1970s. And that starts with the Rolling Stones. The Stones' 1972 American tour in support of Exile on Main Street wasn't just a peak moment for the band. It changed the music industry with its brilliant musicality, scale, legendary recounting, and adherence to the mantra of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The Rolling Stones would spend less than two months on tour in America, but it was a whirlwind of a track, featuring 48 dates, including a memorable stop at the Outdoor Rubber Bowl in Akron, Ohio. This is the story of how a band embarked on one of the greatest live runs in music history, one everyone who had the privilege of witnessing will never, ever forget. The Rolling Stones' 1969 American tour, a legendary excursion in its own right, didn't end the way anyone expected. On December 6, 1969, the Stones descended upon Altamont Speedway in Northern California to perform in front of a crowd of 300,000 people. It was anticipated as a Woodstock West, but peace and love did not rule the day. Tensions escalated within the unruly crowd during the Stones' performance of Sympathy for the Devil. A fight broke out, leading to a scuffle between the Hells Angels, serving in a security function at the show, and a concertgoer brandishing a gun. The concertgoer was stabbed by the Angels and killed. It would mark the start of an intense period for the band, who was in the midst of a creative peak. In 1971, the Rolling Stones would release Sticky Fingers, which marked the debut of the band's trademark tongue logo, the arrival of Mick Taylor, and featured landmark hits like Wild Horses and Brown Sugar. The Stones were now the biggest band in the world, but they were in debt. The band members would go into tax exile after learning they owed seven years of back taxes to the UK government. The Rolling Stones would spend several months in the south of France, where Keith Richards rented the Villa Nelco. There, Richards, Taylor, Mick Jagger, Bill Wyman, Charlie Watts, and an amazing group of session players would record Exile on Main Street, considered by many to be the holy grail of Rolling Stones albums. Veteran music journalist and Rolling Stones aficionado Jonathan Perry recalls the mystique surrounding Exile. I think that the mystique around Exile on Main Street 
and then and that that actually helped fuel the tour as well that year that summer really gave it this this aura that the other records don't have the backstory that as you know of Keith Richards holding up and then the band was at the Villanelle Code and in the south of France and recording in a hot humid basement with people coming and going and just hanging out and staying there and having all night sessions where you know Keith Keith would you know get up in the probably get ready to work at three o'clock in the morning and uh, I mean all that feeds into the mystique uh, and I think the the legend the almost kind of myth that that Exile on Main Street has become, the kind of circumstances in which it was recorded. Exile on Main Street would arrive in May 1972, shooting to both number one in the U.S. and the U.K., selling close to a million copies in its first week. Its success was comparable to the Stones' previous two classic albums, Let It Bleed and Sticky Fingers. But as Perry points out, Exile on Main Street had a vibe unto its own. I think what holds the album together and what gives it some of its the weight of its greatness is that it's it's an album that's really not about individual tracks. It's really an album of mood and atmosphere. The fact that the Stones sound is, is actually kind of murkily recorded, but the, the, you know, which fits the Stones' kind of rough, imperfect sound. But I mean, I you can hear all of the kind of a number of their influences there. Blues, of course, but then there's gospel, there's stabs at country, there's the R&B workouts, and then there's, you know, the classic Stones kind of songs that are built on these archetypal rock and roll riffs um, and Jagger's vocal. But I feel like you're hearing the band kind of at ease, conversational, stretching out, and really going where the music takes them. So I think all of that adds to the coolness and the the legend of the record. Exile on Main Street would cap one of the great four album runs in music history, something writer Bill Janovitz chronicles in his installment of 33 and a Third, revisiting the epic double album. I think the Stones themselves, to a great extent, have a hard time, you know, separating out one record from the other during that era. Because they were recording a lot of these songs, you know, a couple of these songs on Exile, for example, went back to 69. A couple of them were recorded during this the Sticky Fingers sessions, it was sort of all one big, we're either on the road or we're in the studio kind of run. It doesn't it doesn't get any better after Exile, and some, some would argue that Sticky Fingers was, was better. Um, you know, there's, there's not a bad song on, on any of them as far as I'm concerned during that run. In need of money and hoping to rebound from the disastrous conclusion to their 1969 American tour, the Rolling Stones began plotting a tour in support of Exile on Main Street. It was the band's first tour in America in three years, an extremely important trip, recalls Perry. There was an urgency. There was an urgency to, I think, remain relevant, to come back to America, which was always a big deal to the Stones, being nice British boys who worshipped Chicago blues and chess studios and, and all of, and you know, Muddy Waters and all of that, all of the all of the greats. So I think that, you know, coming into the new dawn of the seventies, the Stones were both they're both setting and I think setting new rules for how, how rock bands toured and everything. But I do think that um, there was a lot of uncertainty about where the, what the Stones place was going to be in the seventies. And I think that they, uh, Mick Jagger particularly being, uh, I think being very kind of conscious of image and uh, economics and sort of his own artistic relevance and, and, you know, his desire to remain, you know, at the forefront of the leading lights of rock and, you know, and, and be the, the quintessential front man and the quintessential rock and roll singer. I think that, you know, coming back to America after Altamont and, and I think what was 
I think that we forget that how young they were. I think they hadn't fully processed how traumatic that tour ended, and I think they felt a little bit snake-bitten. The tour came with a sense of paranoia. Word spread that the Hells Angels had put a bounty out on Mick Jagger for putting the blame for Altamont on the motorcycle club. A combination of drug use and worry over the Angels would lead Keith Richards to carry a gun throughout the tour. Extra security measures were put into place, such as the band having its own private plane, using limos to travel to shows, and larger stages to keep fans at bay. But it would also add to the colossal feel of that 1972 tour. The private plane came with the new Tongue logo painted on it. The stage featured 40-foot mirrors with a lighting system that would reflect back onto the band members. Celebrities like Truman Capote, Bob Dylan, Zsa Zsa Gabor, and Woody Allen would tag along at various stops. The run would become known as the STP Tour, short for the Stones Touring Party, as the press followed the Stones' every move like it was detailing a presidential election. One of the uh, ways in which it changed the way rock stars or rock bands are perceived is that the band themselves really on a tour uh, were regarded as these kind of exotic objects of and given lavish media attention. I mean, I think that was really the first time that I know of that major magazines and publications like Life Magazine and Saturday Review, and I mean, mainstream American publications were covering the tour and, you know, legendary photographers like Jim Marshall who shot a million jazz and rock album covers. He was photographing the band for life. And Terry Southern, you know, the novelist, uh, was writing for Saturday Review and even had Truman Capote, you know, tagging along for it. So I think that um, it was also, it was really the first tour of celebrity where it changed the way rock bands could be perceived and the way they and the way they could also control their own destiny from their image to the way they planned the tours and promoted it. And I think, you know, they, I believe it was the first time that, you know, you really had advanced scouts and, and the promotions machine in place for that tour. The Stones certainly gave the media material they needed. Cocaine and alcohol were in full view. Just about every stop on the tour featured a heavy police presence and numerous arrests of concert goers. At the Stone Show in Montreal, a bomb blew up the band's equipment van, causing replacement gear to be flown in. During a stop in Chicago, the Rolling Stones stayed at Hugh Hefner's Playboy Mansion. Then, while in Rhode Island, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were arrested after a fight with a photographer. The duo was eventually bailed out by then-Boston Mayor Kevin White, just so they could fulfill the band's tour stop at the Boston Garden. Despite all the debauchery and mayhem, they were secondary to the music, as the Stones routinely put on one of the greatest live shows the world had ever seen. Mick Jagger in particular was coming into his own as a lively frontman that owned every inch of the stage. In 1969, we, we first saw, the, saw it coming to fruition, Jagger coming really into his own and not just sort of imitating doing doing James Brown dance moves in the mid-60s and stuff. But I, I feel like in 1972... And it's kind of comes to a, a head in, in Midnight Rambler, where it's really, uh, I think Keith Richards had referred to it as a blues opera, where it's an extended showcase, really, for Jagger. And he's really the focal point uh, on stage. I, people forget, I think people now take for granted Mick Jagger as, you know, an all-time frontman or the all-time frontman. I think that he had that image 
um, as this hedonistic sort of manipulative kind of uh, countercultural antagonistic hero, anti-hero that the parents hated. And he really, uh, I think he really reveled in that role. And he just had such a natural dynamism um, and this kinetic energy uh, that he brought to the stage through just kind of nonstop motion and sort of uh, inhabiting the, the, the songs. I mean, kind of the where Keith Richards was, was riffing and, and holding down the rhythm, I think Jagger sort of became the, the crystallized focal point of the, of the attitude of the song. The Rolling Stones played just two outdoor concerts on that 1972 tour, including a stop on July 11th at the Akron Rubber Bowl. The football stadium, which began hosting major rock and roll concerts that summer, had put together a stacked lineup of performers. It included Faces, Black Sabbath, Eagles, the Allman Brothers Band, and Jefferson Airplane. But nothing was bigger than the Stones, recalls pop culture historian and Vermilion native Dave Schwenson. It was big news when they were touring. I mean, you know, we didn't have the Beatles anymore. It was the Stones. And, like, they were coming to Akron. Are you kidding me? Let's go. You know, because they, they made a big splash in 69. Even that tour we were following. Too young. They, they didn't come to Cleveland. They, close, they came to Detroit, and I was too young to go. My parents, I wanted to drive up. I was probably, like, 16 my friends, and now they wouldn't let us go. They came back. We've been waiting all these years then for 72. As if the Stones' 1972 tour wasn't big enough, it included Stevie Wonder as the opening act. The Motown R&B star was on the verge of his own creative peak, having just released Music of My Mind that March. Wonder would often join forces with the Rolling Stones for a performance of his song Uptight in the band's hit Satisfaction, led by Wonder and Mick Jagger. <laughs> The Akron show wasn't without its tense moments. A fight broke out on the field during Wonder's set, rattling the musician, recalls concertgoer Jim Day. They had a lot of security outside, and then they had kind of a tight little unit inside that when people got rowdy, they just swarm in and take care of it, and it was done. Uh, like I say, it was kind of hanging over the place, the whole Altamont team, you know. These these uh, these people that wanted to recreate Altamont would start up trouble, and it really rattled Stevie Wonder. Swenson remembers the incident as more of a full-blown fight between a bunch of young concertgoers and overzealous police. You know, it was that era, too, with all the protests and everything going on, and the Stones, whatever they... That's some, I remember specifically that tour following it, and, uh, you know, it was a lot of violence. I think we're... Right. And it... In Akron, the rumor was, and I've always heard since, that some kids down there were smoking pot or selling pot, something like that. And the cops were not going to let that happen. So during Stevie Wonder's set, I mean, there was a line of policemen, you can still picture it, going through the kids, and the kids were fighting back. I'm sure the billy clubs were out. I remember one cop, was, he was bald. I always remember this because he was bleeding off the top of his head. It was a real scene. Oh my gosh, they're going to cancel this whole thing. The show was not canceled. Once it was dark out, the Rolling Stones took the stage for a near-perfect 15-song set bookended by Brown Sugar and Street Fighting Man. The concert at the Rubber Bowl was captured on a fan recording and circulated as a bootleg. The STP tour would continue in the same way for two more weeks, incidences of violence coinciding with amazing live shows. Things would conclude during an epic four-night stand at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Ladies and gentlemen, more than half a million people mailed in postcards in hopes of earning the right to buy tickets to one of the four shows. The cost of a seat in 1972? Just $6.50. 
though tickets were resold on the streets for as much as $100. By all accounts, the four shows were each amazing. Grace Lichtenstein covered the concerts for the New York Times. At, at 30, Mick Jagger was just an incredible ball of energy. He didn't stop for one second. He must have eaten, you know, huge meals because he was skinny, but he used up so much energy that you wondered how, where it all came from. And the answer, I don't think, was cocaine. He just had a remarkable verve, and he he moved like a dancer, of course. And if you've seen the concert films, then you know how... Um, active he was on stage i mean it was wonderful i loved those shows and especially with stevie wonder as the opening act it was one of the greatest rock shows i think i've ever seen a brief celebration of mick jagger's birthday which included a pie throwing contest between the band and fans concluded the final show at madison square garden but it was afterwards that the real party began lichtenstein was invited to cover jagger's 29th birthday party at the saint regis roof thrown by Atlantic Records president Ahmet Erdogan and featuring 500 partygoers. It was a night featuring several celebrities, performances by Count Bassey and the Muddy Waters Blues Band. There was cocaine, marijuana, a cake with a special surprise inside, and a fun-loving Bob Dylan, who referred to the night as the beginning of cosmic consciousness. I uh, ran into a little hot water with that. I had a, I had a great time at the party. Uh, I didn't indulge in anything because I was taking notes, but I thought I'd report it straight, you know, what I saw. And when the story appeared, I guess Ahmet Erdogan complained to the Times that I would suggest that there were drugs in use because he, he was worried about, I don't know, the consequences, exactly what those consequences, I don't think there were any consequences. They were just in the stories. Uh, but I mean, it was pretty freewheeling. The 1972 American tour would net the Rolling Stones more than $2 million in profits. It was a rousing success by all accounts, but also perhaps the end of an era for the band, says Perry. It was the tour that, that was kind of big business. And, you know, I think that's when the band started to become a brand with the lips and the tongue logo. And, you know, it was sort of, they were sort of coming into their own as kind of their own corporation, their own juggernaut. I don't think their music was quite as urgent or as necessary to, you know, culturally um, in terms of having the relevance uh, that, you know, a generation was looking to them and waiting with bated breath on their next record. I, th I think a lot of people look forward to the next record because they and we're, we're fans, but I, I don't think it was, you know, um, you know, a matter of uh, breaking new ground or making a, the next major statement. Of course, the Rolling Stones are still touring today. And while nothing would ever equal the 1972 run, Janowitz insists the band is still something to marvel at. I think it's only they've only grown in stature with their longevity. There were many periods, many times where they were written off. Rock and roll itself was only 25, 30 years old by the by 80, you know, so it was still a relatively young thing. And here they, how old can these people keep going you know they give me old men up on stage and yeah i went to go see them in 2013 and they kicked ass they were they were truly great thank you for listening to cle rocks for more episodes visit our pages on acast apple spotify and your favorite podcast directories thanks to everyone who participated in this episode i'm troy l smith until next time <laughs>